Why are they doing this? Why are they doing this? You really want to know? It might make you uncomfortable and you even sound a little crazy. But if I tell you, you can't go back to sleep. Here's the truth. You're under attack. We all are. Our children, our families, our communities. The saddest part is, they're only successful because we refuse to pay attention. For centuries, even millennia, they've conspired in the shadows and worked behind the scenes and hidden the truth behind cascading waves of lies and distractions. Can we be victorious? The fusion cell. I'll be your warrior guide, retired Green Beret Master Sergeant Jeremy Brown, with former Police Sergeant Jen. Do we have all the answers? Absolutely not. But together, we'll find them. Now, wake up. We've got work to do. Welcome, 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 late night in the fusion cell. Tonight's purpose is doing our late night homework. I wanted to read the Federalist Papers 27 through 29, so that in case you didn't have time to read it, you could at least hear it. And I have to read it anyway, so here we are. Hope everybody's having a good Saturday night. I had to think about what day it was. Oh. It's been a long weekend. Okay, let's dive in. Oh, and just for your information, that song was Mozart's Eine kleine Nachtmusik, which means a little night music and was composed in 1787, which is the same time that these Federalist Papers were written. All right, number 27, Alexander Hamilton. It has been urged in different shapes that a constitution of the kind proposed by the convention cannot operate without the aid of a military force to execute its laws. This, however, like most other things that have been alleged on that side, rests on mere general assertion, unsupported by any precise or intelligible designation of the reasons upon which it is founded. As far as I've been able to divine the latent meaning of the objectors, it seems to originate in a presupposition that the people will be disinclined to the exercise of federal authority in any manner of an internal nature. Waiving any exception that might be taken to the inaccuracy of inexplicitness of the distinction between internal and external, let us inquire what ground there is to presuppose that disinclination in the people. Unless we presume at the same time that the powers of the general government will be worse administered than those of the state governments, there seems to be no room for the presumption of ill will, disaffection, or opposition in the people. I believe it may be laid down as a general rule that their confidence in and obedience to a government will commonly be proportioned to the goodness or badness of its administration. It must be admitted that there are exceptions to this rule, but these exceptions depend so entirely on accidental causes that they cannot be considered as having any relation to the intrinsic merits or demerits of a constitution. These can only be judged of by general principles and maxims. 
Various reasons have been suggested in the course of these papers to induce a probability that the general government will be better administered than the particular governments. The principle of which are that the extension of the spheres of election will present a greater option or latitude of choice to the people that through the medium of the state legislatures who are select bodies of men and who are to appoint the members of the national Senate, there is reason to expect that this branch will generally be composed with peculiar care and judgment that these circumstances promise greater knowledge and more comprehensive information in the national councils. And that on account of the extent of the country from which those to whose direction they will be committed will be drawn, they will be less apt to be tainted by the spirit of faction and more out of the reach of those occasional ill humors or temporary prejudices and propensities which in smaller societies frequently contaminate the public deliberations, beget injustice and oppression of a part of the community, and engender schemes which, though they gratify a momentary inclination or desire, terminate in general distress, dissatisfaction, and disgust. Several additional reasons of considerable force to fortify that probability will occur when we come to survey with a more critical eye the interior structure of the edifice which which we are invited to erect. It will be sufficient here to remark that until satisfactory reasons can be assigned to justify an opinion that the federal government is likely to be administered in such a manner as to render it odious or contemptible to the people, there can be no reasonable foundation for the supposition that the laws of the Union will meet with any greater obstruction from them or will stand in need of any other methods to enforce their execution than the laws of the particular members. The hope of impunity is a strong incitement to sedition, the dread of punishment, a proportionately strong discouragement to it. Will not the government of the Union, which, if possessed of a due degree of power, can call to its aid the collective resources of the whole Confederacy, be more likely to repress the former sentiment and to inspire the latter than that of a single state which can only command the resources within itself? A turbulent faction in a state may easily suppose itself able to contend with the friends to the government in that state, but it can hardly be so infatuated as to imagine itself a match for the combined efforts of the Union. If this reflection be just, there is less danger of resistance from irregular combinations of individuals to the authority of the Confederacy than to that of a single member. I will, in this place, hazard an observation which will not be the less just because to some it may appear new, which is that the more the operations of the national authority are intermingled in the ordinary exercise of government, the more the citizens are accustomed to meet with it in the common occurrences of their political life, the more it is familiarized to their sight and to their feelings, the further it enters into those objects which touch the most sensible chords and put in motion the most active springs of the human heart, the greater will be the probability that it will conciliate the respect and attachment of the community. Man is very much a creature of habit. A thing that rarely strikes his senses will generally have but a transient influence upon his mind. 
A government continually at a distance and out of sight can hardly be expected to interest the sensations of the people. The inference is that the authority of the Union and the affections of the citizens toward it will be strengthened rather than weakened by its extension to what are called matters of internal concern and that it will have less occasion to recur to force in proportion to the familiarity and comprehensiveness of its agency. The more it circulates through those channels and currents in which the passions of mankind naturally flow, the less will it require the aid of the violent and perilous expedients of compulsion. One thing, at all events, must be evident, that a government like that proposed would bid much fairer to avoid the necessity of using force than the species of league contended for by most of its opponents, the authority of which should only operate upon the states in their political or collective capacities. It's been shown that in such a confederacy there can be no sanction for the laws but force, that frequent delinquencies in the members are the natural offspring of the very frame of the government, and that as often as these happen, they can only be redressed, if at all, by war and violence. The plan reported by the convention, by extending the authority of the federal head to the individual citizens of the several states, will enable the government to employ the ordinary magistracy of each in the execution of its laws. It's easy to perceive that this will tend to destroy, in the common apprehension, all distinction between the sources from which they might proceed, and will give the federal government the same advantage for securing a due obedience to its authority, which is enjoyed by the government of each state, in addition to the influence on public opinion, which will result from the important consideration of having power to call to its assistance and support the resources of the whole union. It merits particular attention in this place that the laws of the Confederacy as to the enumerated and legitimate objects of its jurisdiction will become the supreme law of the land. To the observance of which all officers, legislative, executive, and judicial in each state will be bound by the sanctity of an oath. Thus the legislatures, courts, and magistrates of their respective members will be incorporated into the operations of the national government as far as it is as its just and constitutional authority extends and will be rendered auxiliary to the enforcement of its laws any man who will pursue by his own reflections the consequences of this situation will perceive that there is good ground to calculate upon a regular and peaceable execution of the laws of the union if its powers are administered with a common share of prudence if we will arbitrarily suppose the contrary, we may deduce any inferences we please from the supposition, for it is certainly possible, by an injudicious exercise of the authorities of the best government that ever was, or ever can be instituted, to provoke and precipitate the people into the wildest excesses. But though the adversaries of the proposed constitution should presume that the national rulers would be insensible to the motives of public good, or to the obligations of duty. I would still ask them how the interests of ambition or the views of encroachment can be promoted by such a conduct. And there's a keynote here. It says, The sophistry which has been employed to show that this will tend to the destruction of the state government's will in its proper place be fully detected. 
I hope you all are enjoying some nighttime tea like I am. Sleepy, sleepy time, bedtime, nighttime, sweet dreams tea. Okay. We're moving on to number 28. Same subject continued, Alexander Hamilton. That there may happen cases in which the national government may be necessitated to resort to force cannot be denied. Our own experience has corroborated the lessons taught by the examples of other nations. That emergencies of this sort will sometimes exist in all societies, however constituted. That seditions and insurrections are unhappily maladies as inseparable from the body politic as tumors and eruptions from the natural body. That the idea of governing at all times by the simple force of law which we've been told is the only admissible principle of Republican government, has no place but in the reveries of those political doctors whose sagacity disdains the admonitions of experimental instruction. Should such emergencies at any time happen under the national government, there could be no remedy but force. The means to be employed must be proportioned to the extent of the mischief. If it should be a slight commotion in a small part of a state, the militia of the residue would be adequate to its suppression, and the natural presumption is that they would be ready to do their duty. An insurrection, whatever may be its immediate cause, eventually endangers all government. Regard to the public peace, if not to the rights of the Union, would engage the citizens to whom the contagion had not communicated itself to oppose the insurgents, and if the general government should be found in practice conducive to the prosperity and felicity of the people, it were irrational to believe that they would be disinclined to its support. If, on the contrary, the insurrection should pervade a whole state or a principal part of it, the employment of a different kind of force might become unavoidable. It appears that Massachusetts found it necessary to raise troops for suppressing the disorders within that state, that Pennsylvania, from the mere apprehension of commotions among a part of her citizens, has thought proper to have recourse to the same measure. Suppose the state of New York had been inclined to reestablish her lost jurisdiction over the inhabitants of Vermont. Could she have hoped for success in such an enterprise from the efforts of the militia alone? Would she not have been compelled to raise and to maintain a more regular force for the execution of her design? If it must then be admitted that the necessity of recurring to the force different from the militia in cases of this extraordinary nature is applicable to the state governments themselves, why should the possibility that the national government might be under a like necessity in similar extremities be made an objection to its existence? It's not surprising that men who declare an attachment to the Union in the abstract should urge as an objection to the proposed Constitution what applies with tenfold weight to the plan for which they contend, and what, as far as it has any foundation in truth, is an inevitable consequence of civil society upon a large, an enlarged scale. Who would not prefer that possibility to the unceasing agitations and frequent revolutions which are the continual scourges of petty republics? Let us pursue this examination in another light. Suppose in lieu of one general system, two or three or even four confederacies were to be formed, 
Would not the same difficulty oppose itself to the operations of either of these confederacies? Would not each of them be exposed to the same casualties? And when these happened, be obliged to have recourse to the same expedients for upholding its authority which are objected to in a government for all the states? Would the militia in this supposition be more ready or more able to support the federal authority than in the case of a general union? All candid and intelligent men must, upon due consideration, acknowledge that the principle of the objection is equally applicable to either of the two cases, and that whether we have one government for all the states or different governments for different parcels of them, or as many unconnected governments as there are states, there might sometimes be a necessity to make use of a force constituted differently from the militia to preserve the peace of the community and to maintain the just authority of the laws against those violent invasions of them which amount to insurrections and rebellions. Independent of all other reasonings upon the subject, it is a full answer to those who require a more preemptory provision against military establishments in time of peace to say that the whole power of the proposed government is to be in the hands of the representatives of the people. This is the essential and, after all, the only efficacious security for the rules and privileges of the people which is attainable in civil society. If the representatives of the people betray their constituents, there is then no resource left but in the exertion of that original right of self-defense, which is paramount to all positive forms of government, in which against the usurpations of the national rulers may be exerted with an infinitely better prospect of success than against those of the rulers of an individual state. In a single state, if the persons entrusted with supreme power become usurpers, the different parcels, subdivisions, or districts of which it consists, having no distinct government in each, can take no regular measure for defense. The citizens must, must rush tumultuously to arms without concert, without system, without resource, except in their courage and despair. The usurpers, clothed with the forms of legal authority, can too often crush the opposition in embryo. The smaller the extent of, of the territory, the more difficult will it be for the people to form a regular or systematic plan of opposition and the more easy will it be to defeat their early efforts. Intelligence can be more speedily obtained of their preparations and movements, and the military force in the possession of the usurpers can be more rapidly directed against the part where the opposition has begun. In this situation, there must be a peculiar coincidence of circumstances to ensure success to the popular resistance. The obstacles to usurpation and the faculties facilities of resistance increase with the increased extent of the state, provided the citizens understand their rights and are deposed to defend them. The natural strength of the people in a large community, in proportion to the artificial strength of the government, is greater than in a small and, of course, more competent to a struggle with the attempts of the government to establish a tyranny. But in a confederacy, the people, without exaggeration, may be said to be entirely the masters of their own fate. Power being almost always the rival of power, the general government will, at all times, stand ready to check the usurpations of the state governments 
and these will have the same disposition towards the general government. The people, by throwing themselves into either scale, will infallibly make it preponderate. If their rights are invaded by either, they can make use of the other as the instrument of redress. How wise will it be in them by cherishing the union to preserve to themselves an advantage which can never be too highly prized? It may safely be received as an axiom in our political system that the state governments will, in all possible contingencies, afford complete security against invasions of the public liberty by the national authority. Projects of usurpation cannot be masked under pretenses so likely to escape the penetration of select bodies of men as of the people at large. The legislatures will have better means of information. They can discover the danger at a distance and possessing all the organs of civil power and the confidence of the people. They can at once adopt a regular plan of opposition in which they can combine all the resources of the community. They can readily communicate with each other in the different states and unite their common forces for the protection of their common liberty. The great extent of the country is a further security. We have already experienced its utility against the attacks of a foreign power, and it would have precisely the same effect against the enterprises of ambitious rulers in the national councils. If the federal army should be able to quell the resistance of one state, the distant states would be able to make head with fresh forces. The advantages obtained in one place must be abandoned to subdue the opposition in others. And the moment the part which had been reduced to submission was left to itself, its efforts would be renewed and its resistance revive. We should rec recollect that the extent of the military force must, at all events, be regulated by the resources of the country. For a long time to come, it will not be possible to maintain a large army. And as the means of doing this increase, the population and natural strength of community will proportionately increase. When will the time arrive that the federal government can raise and maintain an army capable of erecting a despotism over the great body of the people of an immense empire who are in a situation through the medium of their state governments to take measures for their own defense with all the celerity, regularity, and system of independent nations. The apprehension may be considered as a disease for which there can be found no cure in the resources of argument and reasoning. Mm -mm -mm. End note there. I guess these are all written by um, Alexander Hamilton. This is my first time reading them but it seems like they've uh, faced such situations before. Take a little sip of my sleepy go nighttime tea. Okay, this is number 29, so they're not too long. Number 29, Concerning the Militia, Alexander Hamilton. The power of regulating the militia and of commanding its services in times of insurrection and invasion are natural incidents to the duties of superintending the common defense and of watching over the internal peace of the Confederacy. It requires no skill in the science of war to discern that uniformity in the organization and discipline of the militia would be attended with the most beneficial effects 
whenever they were called into service for the public defense. It would enable them to discharge the duties of the camp and of the field with mutual intelligence and concert, an advantage of peculiar moment in the operations of an army, and it would fit them much sooner to acquire the degree of proficiency in military functions which would be essential to their usefulness. This desirable uniformity can only be accomplished by confiding the regulation of the militia to the direction of the national authority. It is, therefore, with the most evident propriety that the plan of the convention proposes to empower the Union to provide for organizing, arming, and disciplining the militia, and for governing such part of them as may be employed in the service of the United States, reserving to the states respectively the appointment of the officers and the authority of training the militia according to the discipline prescribed by Congress. Of the different grounds which have been taken in opposition to this plan, there is none that was so little to have been expected or is so untenable in itself as the one from which this particular provision has been attacked. If a well-regulated militia be the most natural defense of a free country, it ought certainly to be under the regulation and at the disposal of that body which is constituted the guardian of national security. If standing armies are dangerous to liberty, an efficacious power over the militia in the same body ought, as far as possible, to take away the inducement and the pretext to such unfriendly institutions. If the federal government can command the aid of the militia in those emergencies which call for the military arm in support of the civil magistrate, it can the better dispense with the employment of a different kind of force. If it cannot avail itself of the former, it will be obliged to recur to the latter. To render an army unnecessary will be a more certain method of preventing its existence than a thousand prohibitions upon paper. In order to cast an odium upon the power of calling forth the militia to execute the laws of the Union, it's been remarked that there is nowhere any provision in the proposed Constitution for requiring the aid of the posse comitas to assist the magistrate in the execution of his duty, whence it has been inferred that military force was intended to be his only auxiliary. There is a striking incoherence in the objections which have appeared, and sometimes even from the same quarter, not much calculated to inspire a very favorable opinion of the sincerity or fair dealing of their authors. The same persons who tell us in one breath that the powers of the federal government will be despotic and unlimited inform us in the next that it is not authority sufficient even to call out the posse comitas. The latter, fortunately, is as much short of the truth as the former exceeds it. It would be absurd to doubt that a right to pass all laws necessary and proper to execute its declared powers would include that of requiring the assistance of the citizens to the officers who may be entrusted with the execution of those laws, as it would be to believe that a right to enact laws necessary and proper for the imposition and collection of taxes would involve that of varying the rules of dissent and of the alienation of landed property, or of abolishing the trial by jury in cases relating to it. It being therefore evident that the supposition of a want of power to, the re to require the aid of the passe comitas is entirely destitute of color. It will follow that the conclusion which has been drawn from it in its application to the authority of the federal government over the militia 
is as uncandid as it is illogical. What reason could there be to infer that force was intended to be the sole instrument of authority, merely because there is a power to make use of it when necessary? What shall we think of the motives which could induce men of sense to reason in this extraordinary manner? How shall we prevent a conflict between charity and conviction? By a curious refinement upon the spirit of republican jealousy, we are even taught to apprehend danger from the militia itself and the hands of the federal government. It is observed that select corps may be formed, composed of the young and the ardent, who may be rendered subservient to the views of arbitrary power. What plan for the regulation of the militia may be pursued by the national government is impossible to be foreseen. But so far from viewing the matter in the same light with those who object to select corps as dangerous, were the Constitution ratified, and were I to deliver my sentiments to a member of the federal legislature on the subject of a militia establishment, I should hold to him, in the, sub- in the substance, the following discourse. The project of dis- disciplining all the militia of the United States is as futile as it would be injurious if it were capable of being carried into execution. A tolerable expertness in military movements is a business that requires time and practice. It is not a day, nor a week, nor even a month that will suffice for the attainment of it. To oblige the great body of the yeomanry and of the other classes of the citizens to be under arms for the purpose of going through military exercises and evolutions, as often as might be necessary to acquire the degree of perfection which would entitle them to the character of a well-regulated militia, would be a real grievance to the people and a serious public inconvenience and loss. It would form an annual deduction from the productive labor of the country to an amount which, calculating upon the present numbers of the people, would not fall far short of a million pounds. To attempt a thing which would abridge the mass of labor and industry to so considerable an extent would be unwise, and the experiment, if made, could not succeed because it would not be long endured. Little more can be reasonably aimed at with respect to the people at large than to have them properly armed and equipped, and in order to see that this be not neglected, it will be necessary to assemble them once or twice in the course of a year. But though the scheme of disciplining the whole nation must be abandoned as mischievous or impracticable, yet it's a matter of the utmost importance that a well-digested plan should, as soon as possible, be adopted for the proper establishment of the militia. The attention of the government ought particularly to be directed to the formation of a select corps of moderate size upon such principles as will really fit it for service in case of need. By thus circumscribing the plan, it will be possible to have an excellent body of well-trained militia ready to take the field whenever the defense of the state shall require it. This will not only lessen the call for military establishments, but if circumstances should at any time oblige the government to form an army of any magnitude, that army can never be formidable to the liberties of the people while there is a large body of citizens, little if at all inferior to them in discipline and in the use of arms, who stand ready to defend their own rights and those of their fellow citizens. This appears to me the only substitute that can be devised for a standing army and the best possible security against it, if it should exist. Thus, differently from the adversaries of the proposed Constitution, should I reason on the same subject, 
deducing arguments of safety from the very sources from which they represent as fraught with danger and perdition. But how the national legislature may reason on the point is a thing which neither they nor I can foresee. There's something so far-fetched and so extravagant in the idea of danger to liberty from the militia that one is at a loss, whether to treat it with gravity or with raillery, whether to consider it as a mere trial of skill, like the paradoxes of rhetoricians, as a disingenuous artifice to instill prejudices at any price, or as a serious offspring of political fanaticism. Where in the name of common sense are our fears to end, if we may not trust our sons, our brothers, our neighbors, our fellow citizens? What shadow of danger can there be from men who are daily mingling with the rest of their countrymen and who participate with them in the same feelings, sentiments, habits, and interests? What reasonable cause of apprehension can be inferred from a power in the Union to prescribe regulations for the militia and to command its services when necessary? while the particular states are to have the sole and exclusive appointment of the officers. If it were possible, seriously, to indulge a jealousy of the militia upon any conceivable establishment under the federal government, the circumstances of the officers being in the appointment of the states ought at once to extinguish it. There can be no doubt that this circumstance will always secure to them a preponderating influence over the militia. In reading many of the publications against the Constitution, a man is apt to imagine that he's perusing some ill-written tale or romance, which instead of natural and agreeable images, exhibits to the mind nothing but frightful and distorted shapes. Gorgon's, Hydra's, and Chimera's dire. Discoloring and disfiguring whatever it represents and transforming everything it touches into a monster. A sample of this is to be observed in the exaggerated and improbable suggestions which have taken place respecting the power of calling for the services of the militia. That of New Hampshire is to be marched to Georgia, of Georgia to New Hampshire, of New York to Kentucky, and of Kentucky to Lake Champlain. Nay, the debts due to the French and Dutch are to be paid in militiamen instead of Louis d'Or and Ducats. At one moment there is to be a large army to lay prostrate the liberties of the people. At another moment, the militia of Virginia are to be dragged from their homes five or six hundred miles to tame the Republican contumacy of Massachusetts, and that of Massachusetts is to be transported an equal distance to subdue the refractory haughtiness of the aristocratic Virginians. Do the persons who rave at this rate imagine that their art or their eloquence can impose any conceits or absurdities upon the people of America for infallible truths? If there should be an army to be made use of as the engine of despotism, what need of the militia? If there should be no army, whither would the militia, irritated at being required to undertake a distant and distressing expedition for the purpose of riveting the chains of slavery upon a part of their countrymen, direct their course, but to the seat of tyrants who had mediated, meditated, so foolish as well as so wicked a project to crush them in their imagined entrenchments of power and to make them an example of the just vengeance of an abused and incensed people. Is this the way in which usurpers stride to dominion over a numerous and enlightened nation? Do they begin by exciting the detestation of the very instruments of their intended usurpations? 
do they usually commence their career by wanton and disgustful acts of power, calculated to answer no end, but to draw upon themselves universal hatred and execration? Are suppositions of this sort the sober admonitions of discerning patriots to a discerning people? Are they the inflammatory ravings of chagrined incendiaries or distempered enthusiasts? If we were even to suppose the national rulers actuated by the most ungovernable ambition, it's impossible to believe that they would employ such preposterous means to accomplish their designs. In times of insurrection or invasion, it would be natural and proper that the militia of a neighboring state should be marched into another to resist a common enemy or to guard the republic against the violence of faction or sedition. This was frequently the case in respect to the first object in the course of the late war. And this mutual succor is indeed a principal end of our political association. If the power of affording it be placed under the direction of the union, there will be no danger of a supine and listless inattention to the dangers of a neighbor till its near approach had superadded the incitements of self-preservation to the two feeble impulses of duty and sympathy. Wow. I wish I had read that a lot sooner. Lots to think about there. Hello, hello. Looking at the chat here. What? <laughs> yeah. I'm just up uh, reading the Federalist Papers because Jeremy uh, wanted us to read 27 through 29 so he can have a discussion about it next week. And so I figured if I was reading it, then um, we could all read it together. So that's what I'm doing here. But it's definitely time for bed because it is uh, midnight over here on the East Coast. Thank you guys for tuning in. I'm glad we could get our, our homework done. And if that's your first time uh, reading slash listening to those chapters in the Federalist Papers or those papers in general, um, very curious to hear what you think next week. So I'm not sure on the day that we're going to talk about that, but um, I'll try to get that on Twitter and on Locals as, as soon as I can. So I hope everybody has a wonderful night. Enjoy your weekend, everybody. Bear with me as I, I get our, our outro going. All right. Thank you very much for tuning in. Give us a like, give us a subscribe, follow us on Twitter at The Fusion Cell. And I will see you soon. Everybody be safe and whatever you do, don't do nothing. World domination, same old dream. The universe grows smaller every day. birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people and for the people shall not perish from the earth it was a great word